0: Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary workday until the Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked.
2: But <laughs> that's when we sleep.
1: Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at Canva.com. Designed for work.
3: Hello, and welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, a guest comes on to play a clip of one of their jokes and then discusses how they wrote it and how it fits into what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week's guest is Jason Wollner, who's best known from Human Giant, Eagle Heart, directing just many of the best comedy TV shows of the last decade, and, most important for our purposes, directing last year's Borat subsequent movie film. Good one is this show about how the hell comedy is made, and there's no one who has a process like Sacha Baron Cohen. Um... I so distinctly remember finding out how they did Borat, where they're like, we have tons of writers essentially scripting out all possible options for what a person might say, and then Sasha memorizes it. So no matter what, he's ready. And there's like a story about he got so drunk, and he passed out, and then they woke him up, and he woke up in character. And I'm like, this is the most interesting thing I've ever heard. Um, Jason was also fascinated by Sasha's work, even while working with him. So it was a, a blast to talk to Jason about how they made that movie. The scene we're going to play comes fairly early in the movie after Borat decides he's going to make over his daughter, Tutar played by newcomer Maria Baklova with the hopes of giving her as a gift to Mike Pence. Uh, while doing that, Borat sort of warms up to Tutar and he he decides to buy her a cupcake that has a little plastic baby on top of it. And she eats the, the whole thing, including the little plastic baby, uh, No, this is a comedy scene. Everything is scripted. However, Borat has the idea to take her to a crisis pregnancy center. The pastor they then talk to, as is Sasha style, is a real person. So here is Jason Wallner.
2: I have a baby inside me Mm -hmm. and I want to take it out of me.
4: Mm -hmm. Right. She want it out now, please. Right. I mean, can you take it out? No, we cannot. That's not what we do here. And why not? What you say, take it out. Yes. You end that life. That that life will die. Right. It's already dead. It's not living. No, it is living right now. It has a, it's this big. It has a heartbeat right now. I don't think so. It is a living, breathing life that God has created. I don't think he's breathing. We can show you that it's breathing.
2: It hurt my stomach.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And it will hurt my asshole. Mm-hmm.
4: If it come out, yes. Because the, the arm, the arm like this. It can tear it. Right. I feel bad because I was the one who put the baby in her. You don't need to feel bad. I was just trying to give my daughter pleasure. And next thing I know, there is a baby inside her. Mm-hmm. You keep calling her your daughter. Yes. Okay. Is he your father?
0: Yes. This yes. is your
4: daughter. Yes. Okay. I wanted to give my daughter a treat. I understand. I, I don't if need she to hear. Was, any, I don't need to hear any more of that. I understand. She just had that. That. that, she, that but she look at per, that face. I understand. How could I not give it I to understand. her? Would I, you not give it I to understand. her? Understand. Listen. I, it really that is not important right now. We're at this moment. It really doesn't matter how we got to this moment.
2: When he treated me, he said this will be our little secret.
4: Yes, this is why I do it behind the dumpster so no no one can see. Now that you know that I am her father, can we take it out now, please? God is the one who creates life, and God doesn't make accidents.
3: I am here with Jason Wollner. Thank you for joining me.
2: Uh, Thanks, Jesse. Thanks for having me.
3: So uh, I want to go back to November 2006. Uh, I believe you were working on the first season of Human Giant at that point. But um, that is when the first Borat came out. Um, Do you remember what you expected going into it? And tell me everything you remember from seeing it for the first time.
2: The only actual specific memory I have is, I think, the same memory that everyone has, which is just screaming with laughter at the whole movie and especially, you know, the naked fight and um, just the overall experience of it. I think I went with at least Aziz and and probably the other Human Giant guys. Yeah, we were working on that show um, and it was just such a moment that, yeah, I remember that first weekend, just this thing came out that I know I had been aware. I'd watched the Ali G show on HBO and, and was a fan already and was excited, but it was just that kind of thing where something crosses over from comedy nerd Mm -hmm. world and then suddenly everyone, uh, you know, enjoys it and and falls in love with it. And that was, you know, it's really rare where something like that works for, yeah, people who are on all sides of the political spectrum and, you know, super brainy and also, you know, the kind of like frat boys that are Mm -hmm. in uh, (laughs) Borat in the RV are also the kind of guys that would, you know, go crazy about that movie and also the types of people that would be quoting it for the next decade and a half. And it just really, um, it hits something where it, uh, yeah, it was just the biggest thing and, and everyone, uh, went crazy for it.
3: Did considering it came out while you're working sort of on your first big project, did it, did it influence you in any way? Did it influence, how do you approach your work there or your work going forward?
2: Um, If anything, I would say it was great proof that something uh, does not have to look classically great uh, Mm. to be funny. Um, The movie looks perfect. Um, It looks exactly as it should. But, you know, it was completely the opposite of like slick comedies, Mm. everything very punchy and lit and locked down. And broad, and of course, because it was a you know a documentary in a lot of ways, it kind of just um, everything supported the realism, which is the same way we shot this movie, which is almost no lights at all, just mm-hmm. two or three cameras following him around, you know, positioned in certain ways to capture what's going on in a specific way to capture people's looks. You know, we had a lot of, and I and I watched the original Borat while we were making this many, many, many times, just to kind of really try to figure out exactly every little thing they did that made it work. Um, and in terms of like when you're covering a, a scene with two people, you know, if you've only got two cameras, you're going to have to choose who who do you have better eyes on, as we say, who's got, you know, more of a frontal view. And usually that's the person reacting. It's kind of mm-hmm. he'll ask a question. And then when we go to the person, the real person, you want to see as much of their face as mm-hmm. possible.
3: Yeah. Um, November 2016, Donald Trump is elected president. <laughs> yeah. uh, clearly, Sasha was affected by this and motivated by it very clearly in the work that he did. But, um, you know, besides being sort of generally feeling bad, did it it affect how you thought about your work? Regardless if you felt like, I need to make political comedy, but did it just, you know, did it affect you in any way of like, you know, what am I doing and why am I doing it?
2: Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think it affected us all in every uh, possible way because it was one of those shifts that um, the entire world feels so different. If you remember from um two, yeah like 2015 to 16 it was just this it was like falling off a cliff and just this story of obama and progress and this and this very nice feeling that we had of what we were going towards was suddenly revealed uh to not that it wasn't the story we were living yeah, yeah, yeah. in <laughs> and yeah. so everything came into question i mean i remember around then it just felt very scary that there were because so much of the alt-right was tied into kind of this kind of gnarled version that a lot of it came from kind of alt comedy of the Mm -hmm. 90s that if you look through like like you look at like kind of 90s alt comedy Mr. Show vibe someone like Gavin McInnes kind of like a hanger-on to that scene became friends with a lot of those guys I was familiar with him I'd met him a few times Um, didn't make it in that world and kind of in this like super villain kind of way because he couldn't make it as a comedian kind of turned that ironic edginess Mm. and you saw that a lot in vice there was a lot of meanness there and a lot of kind of um, reverence that really kind of went into like a very ugly place and he went fully and now he's the founder of like you know one of the most notable hate groups in america and so i remember at the time being like oh my god um like is this what's is this what comedy became? Is this what's yeah. edgy now? And um it was yeah, it was a whole kind of uh reconciling of um yeah, just what uh what, what was gonna be funny moving forward. I mean also like Trump yeah, Trump changed everything because he's the funniest person who's ever lived. He's the best poster who that Twitter ever had. You yeah. look at those tweets, I mean, there's something genuinely funny, not intentionally, sometimes intentionally, but I don't know, I have this whole, there's this whole convoluted thing where I feel like, and this is a real ramble, but I feel like we were in this kind of comedy boom, Twitter blew up yeah. and turned everyone into a comedian, like a late night monologue comedian. Just suddenly <laughs> yeah. it reprogrammed everyone's brain into just doing these like jokes. It made all of our brains into just like one-liner machines. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, what the fuck are we do- doing? <laughs> and like, and so, And then Trump came along and he's like, well, I'm going to just do that better than anybody else. I'm going to be funnier on Twitter. Something about it was this really insanely dark cartoon that became real and made all comedy irrelevant. And that's why you see so many talk shows stop being funny and just angry and spinning out. And when you would take Trump and try to exaggerate what he did to make fun of him it doesn't work because he was already at the the peak absurdity yeah. the fact that this was happening
3: how did it affect what you wanted to do with your work considering he he melted so much of what we thought of as like this is what comedy is like every, in so much as he melted our definition of what everything is he, clearly comedy was a big part of that how did yeah. it then like in the ashes of that what did you feel like what is my place in this world
2: you know, I've just been on my own kind of weird path for uh, for a few years. I mean, I basically, I so I did a few things. Uh, yeah, like like two thousand seven, eight. I did Human Giant. I, I I was fortunate enough that I was able to have a directing career after that, and direct and I worked on TV shows. And then I found out, I figured out pretty quickly, I didn't want to be like a director for hire on yeah. uh, on TV shows because I, I, I respect what they do, but it, it's just it wasn't the best fit when I would just come into a, a, a place where I didn't know anyone and didn't know the show or didn't love the show and try to make decisions that uh, for a thing that I, I, I didn't think was funny. There are a few shows that I did that I, I do love. Like I did a lot of episodes of Last Man on Earth. I, I think Will Forte is one of the funniest people alive. I love that show. I love all those people. Like, so I did, I did a, a little bit of that here and there, but mostly I was like, I don't want to be doing this. And then I had the opportunity at Adult Swim. I did this show called Eagle Heart um for we did it for 3 seasons and we really and I I I just kind of like dug in and myself and uh Andrew Weinberg and Michael Coman uh who created the show it was basically the three of us just doing exactly what we wanted to see and what we thought was funny and kind of trying to do something with narrative and do a, a new kind of thing and generate laughs in a new way and and just kind of find a new tone so I kind of dug in on that we did it for a few years and then we were really itching to to kind of broaden that out and bring bring what we figured out there into a into a place where more people could see it or do something on a bigger scale yeah. and then like everyone just kind of years of pitching and pilots and failed projects that that don't get off the ground and so from around 2014 for a few years including through Trump um I was just kind of trying to just like continuing to <laughs> to dig in on this very weird yeah. stuff that ultimately wasn't getting made trying to get more and more personal Stranger Things going and, and not really, I mean, <laughs> not having a ton of success. I did like we did, Brett Gelman and I did three specials for Adult Swim yeah. and that like one of them we played at Sundance and it's like crossover a little bit. But yeah, a lot of the time of the last few years, including so Trump, I mean, when Trump came into office, um, <laughs> this is crazy. I've never talked to anyone about this because <laughs> I still maybe will do something one day with it. Um, but I had spent a year this is, I had already like, I was like, well, it's, uh, I'm not really able to, because of the climate or whatever, get um, what I want going on TV and movies, certainly like, so, so actually like around that time, okay, this is, okay, two things. <laughs> so Andrew Weinberg, uh, who I did Eagle Heart with, uh, we, around 2014, we were obsessed with conspiracy theories, which were mm-hmm. so... Quaint back then, which were like totally different, which was like yeah. lizard people and chemtrails and and um, all this stuff. And so we wrote this movie, and and, and this one we're not gonna make. So I, I'll just I can talk about it. <laughs> so we wrote a movie um, that uh, was basically about a guy who, and nothing. This is pre-Trump. This is yeah. he's not even running yet. We we came up with this movie about a guy, like kind of a dumb guy who finds out that he is at the center of, like, a massive global conspiracy that ties in everything. So basically, like, the and this is, okay, this shows you how kind of far off our instincts were from what could actually get made. Like, the movie begins with this, like, kind of, like, dumb loner guy um, watching the news in uh, some city in America. And the news is, like, horrible news today. There's been another uh, terrorist attack. This building, you know, blew up and uh, they... They think it was like this um, unmarked, you know, van. Par- it's similar like the first World mm. Trade Center attack. There's a van parked in the basement, and we don't know who's doing it, and or they blame, you know, some terrorist group and blah 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 or blah blah. And the guy is like so mad, and he's like to online. He's like, they got to catch the guys who did this. Anyway, got to go to work, and his job is parking unmarked vans under buildings and then leaving. <laughs> and so, so just like complete idiot. Not aware that he is like the stooge as yeah. part of this like massive global uh, conspiracy thing that also involves uh, I think interdimensional beings and ev- just everything uh, you could possibly imagine. So we had this idea, and then he finds out about it, and he's got blah, blah blah. So we had this idea. We pitched it to um, uh, to Phil Lord and Chris Miller, uh, who I become friendly with, who they were Eagleheart fans and were amazingly supportive of of me trying to do this weird stuff. And then we're like, yeah, we think it could be like a mainstream thing. A lot of people don't know about this whole conspiracy world that's out there. And we think it's really funny. And like there was an Alex Jones type. This is before anyone outside of like fringe internet knew who this guy was, knew any of this stuff. And so we pitched it. We sold it to Warner Brothers. And then we wrote draft after draft for like a couple of years. (laughs) Um, And then Trump came along. And then all this stuff happened. And we were like, yeah, this is like conspiracy world is not funny nor fringe anymore so that was I mean that was a direct like to what you're asking like that was like yeah that the world is different that idea of like this funny thing hey do you know this out there it's like yeah we know this is out there now and there are like real world consequences for it and so the so that was one thing the other thing I was working on where I was like well maybe it's not going to work out in movies or or tv for me Um, so I started working on this idea for like I wanted to build a fake uh, museum (laughs) Um, that was all was all about it was like a fake presidential library about this president that never existed that I would that I just said had kind of been wiped from the history books that yeah. existed sometime depression era of this kind of like bully president who was like a like a hoarder and filled the White House with garbage and like just worked for about a year on this idea and was about to start trying to raise money for it and um and then Trump started gaining steam and it was just like well you can't do anything about it about a horrible president now. So yeah. I don't know if those were like premonitions, um, <laughs> or just seeing, feeling it or seeing the writing on the wall, but yeah. So that was um yeah, I mean what like happened? like everything. Yeah, everything changed or really, really it is
3: interesting that you were sort of interested in the what are a lot of ended up being themes of this movie before they became as important as they were. So you were so you were, i was wondering because it's like you look at your imdb and there's sort of these like gaps of things and you'd be working and i remember you were saying you know in 2018 or 2017 i guess sasha did who is america and he talked to you for that and you were busy and i was like what were you busy doing <laughs> because it's like but it's like just more of this
2: i was busy actually like obsessively, well, first I think I told him when I met with him, I was like, yeah, I'd love to work in this, but I'm really focused on this museum right now, (laughs) which is uh, one of the stupidest things anyone's ever said. Um, But I was also doing this documentary project, which I am still doing and hopefully going to finish now. And that was like, it just felt like, I mean, to me, I I love Who is America. um, And I was like, I want to watch this show, but I know, I mean, there was probably a selfish in there, which I might have been wrong about, where I felt like, that I remember that meeting not feeling like whoever was going to direct this would make a real impact uh, on the show. It felt very straightforward. Hmm. It felt like he's doing interviews as these characters. I kind of, I think I was wrong about that because I see the process and how he kind of gets a group of collaborators and it all does change so much and evolve. But I remember thinking, oh, well, just directing this will be just like segment directing. And I'm really trying to make this passion project happen. And I, and I don't want to step away from it right now. Um, but when the movie came uh my way i remember thinking oh well this is something i could really dig into and really make it you know influence uh i could really influence it yeah so that's that so, the difference
3: yeah you've told the story of when sasha came to you and you you explain you you know you you got the script you didn't say it was borat but it was clearly borat and then you like had this meeting where you explained why he shouldn't do it and <laughs> <laughs> this is the, the the narrative that you've explained and as the ability to ask the follow-up question, why did you do that? When you were reading the script, were you like, This is gonna be awful? I mean like clearly you <laughs> were, not but were you like no oh, I'm I... gonna meet with a cursey? Oh, were you like, oh maybe I'll neg him and then he'll like ask me to do it.
2: No, what happened was I, it's kind of a misquote from the first interview I yeah. gave about the movie, which is basically that's only the first half of my of what I had said, I think. Because my actual answer, and maybe I was just kind of rambling then and I didn't finish it, which is very possible. Very likely. But basically what I said is, yeah, I got this script, I read it. I thought it was hilarious. Um, It was really exciting. What I came in and said was almost every version of this is a mistake, is a disaster. Mm -hmm. Because you made the funniest movie of all time, Um, you know, yeah, to follow up that is going to, you're almost certainly going to disappoint people. To do something 14 years later is even harder. You know, to do something with, with a daughter sounds like it could be you could cast the wrong person that could be just really groan inducing, really terrible yeah. and corny. And, um, you know, there are just so many, and also like you're you, you have to do it in secret and you could just get busted and the whole thing could not work. The second half of what I said, like after the <laughs> comma after the, that, is I said, but if you pull this off, all that stuff would make it even more incredible. The fact yeah. that, um, there's this much against this movie going in. Uh, if it is a movie that could be a worthy follow-up to the original and do all these things that he was already, by the time I got there, trying to do, which was basically introduce this kind of emotional narrative element, do much more with narrative and uh, an emotional story than he was able to do with the first one or with Bruno or with any of these movies um, or any of... any of. Uh, well, I mean, those are the two movies yeah. that he did in this style. Um, but just to have a story that you actually cared about, to make it a two-hander where you cared about both characters because there's Azamat in Borat, there's uh, his boyfriend in Bruno and they're great. They're both played by really talented performers. You don't care about that relationship the way that we were hoping you would care about Borat and Tutar, his daughter. And on top of that, he was saying from the first meeting, I want to move the needle on the election. I want to do something. I want to, even if it doesn't influence, the, even if it doesn't change the election, yeah. I want to be able to say we did all we could to, to either, you know, motivate people to get Trump out or to demoralize Trump voters who are maybe in the middle and are just kind of get to, not through a specific scene, but just through the whole thing, kind of see even a picture of, you know, just be, be kind of faced with what America is under Trump yeah. and make a decision of, of, do we want to continue this? <laughs>
3: I was wondering like you, so, you know, you start soon after that interview, you know, no one else does what he does. And, and, you know, you talked about how close he works with his lawyers. Is there like an onboarding process? Do you like get a rundown of like, well, this is how we do it. Do you, do you talk to Larry Charles? Like, how do you learn how, like you've directed things before, but to like, know the vocabulary of like, that you can actually like, Take the
2: reins this yeah i mean it's it's similar i think part of the reason uh he originally talked to me uh was because i had directed uh a few episodes of nathan for you which is you know same world very different thing but also you're working with real people you're you're not telling people what to say but you're kind of getting stuff that you can help shape a narrative mm-hmm. out of and you're also creating awkwardness in this there's a lot more of not really saying what it actually is obviously they don't know they're in a comedy movie they don't they're there because they don't know who borat is um, and we've hired them for, you know, we've picked them for very selective reasons, but it, it, this is, I would say much more delicate than a, a thing like that. But yeah, no, there was a lot of, um, a lot of learning <laughs> of how they do this <laughs> because like you said, he is the only person that does this specific thing. It's not a prank thing per se. It's I mean, it's a Sasha movie. So like yeah. a lot of the, what we call the field team had come from Who is America? And they're the kind of team that goes out and finds the real people. Through a million different ways that are super, you know, protected and delicate, and different entities, and and kind of all these tactics, and and you know, a lot of it on that show they were used to booking political figures, Mm -hmm. and 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 this it was all about, um, you know, real people, normal people for the most part, obviously besides you know Rudy, Um, but uh, but but still they had they had the skill set that they developed on that show, and that was all taught to them by. the people who had worked on the original stuff, like um, Todd Shulman, who was kind of Sasha's right hand for 15 years, I think, who, who was on this in a kind of a more consulting yeah. process. But a lot of it was the same team. It was the same uh, DP as uh, the original. Yeah, a lot of the same people. So it was a combination of of kind of people who'd been with it uh, since the beginning and then newer people. And um, and the other thing is, yeah, he, he'd never really explained his process before, but he, because he was working with Maria... Um, he had to explain to her, we had to teach her how to do mm. what he, what he did. Yeah. So no, no, it was a lot of, it was a lot of, of learning along the way, but, but it all happened. Like his
3: work. process of how he gets in
2: character, stays in character and remembers all the things to say. Yeah. Basically that. And also what to do when you're losing somebody. Um, mm. like he would say, you know, if, if you could just see someone get a little bit of a question in their eye, like, wait, is this a put on if you say, cause that's, the situation is such that if you say one thing that sounds false or sounds like a pre-written joke or just push it a little too far, people's antennas go up and they start wondering. Um, and, and so he's talked about what he would do. He's like, you just look them deep in the eye and you just go like deeper in, into their eye and you go deeper into the character. And it's almost, I mean, I'm sure it's something like a hypnosis technique or... Um, one of those, you know, Keith Raniere kind of things sure. where he can just kind of control somebody. But um, he had to teach her how to do all that stuff. I mean, she was incredible, and she was such the real deal that that it that never really happened with her, actually. But, um, but yeah, it was amazing to watch him kind of uh, teach his process to someone. Got
3: it. So so let's talk about what writing means for a movie like this. So you, you say you, you, you were sent a script or an outline... You know, who worked on that? How did they work on it? What is it? You know, like, there's, like, a group of people that are listed as story by. There's a group of people that are listed as um, written the movie by. Then there's obviously this whole other team of people we'll get to. So who did the first step of it?
2: And what is that step of it? So the first step, as far as I know, because this is a little bit of this is before I was involved. But um, Sasha was about to go on Jimmy Kimmel around the midterms in 2018, had written another movie with with kind of his crew of writers. Um, yeah. And... Uh, Which was based on the Israeli
3: defense guy or
2: something Yeah, or something. he had written an Iran-Morad movie. And uh, was it going to go on Kimmel? Didn't know what to do. He says he called Chris Rock and asked, what should I do? <laughs> Chris Rock was like, just do Borat. And Sasha was like, I, I don't think I could do that. I think everyone knows who Borat is. He goes, oh, just try it. And if it doesn't work, you know, don't air it. And he tried it. <laughs> And what they learned from that is, they just went, I think it was somewhere in Simi Valley area, Thousand Oaks maybe, and um, just learned, oh, there are a lot of people who don't know Borat still. And they filmed a bit with him and it got them wondering, and I think pretty quickly thereafter, like, let's see if we can figure out a new Borat movie in the era of Trump. And kind of, because they, you know, immediately started making all these connections um, between what it, you know, Trump, what Trump has made of America and kind of the, very fictional Kazakhstan of that movie and, and kind of how those relate and how much America has become like that and kind of backwards, um, in that kind of, yeah, that cartoony universe that they've created like since it in, in these very absurd ways. Um, I I had told him, I was like, I think you want to do this because Trump is the only person who beat you at revealing the ugliness of Americans. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I think it was a vendetta. Um, and that's why he had to come back and do this, but yeah. um, but so they went away for a weekend or a few days. I think the story by group is they beat out like an outline. Mm. They had the idea of, of a of a daughter. I think also 2018 that was much closer to uh, the era of the, the kind of pe- the peak of the Me Too movement. They yeah, were saying, yeah. and and they were focusing on Trump's misogyny. Basically, I think was where how how the daughter character came about. And to make this movie about uh, misogynistic attitudes in America, and that would be the focus of yeah. it, in addition to kind of the overall picture. And so they had this outline, that, and and that's, I think, just scenes, ideas for scenes, in basically, I think it was probably a 30-page document of just like purely an outline. And from that, they, so that was around the, towards the end of 2018, they fleshed that out into what we still called an outline, but it was more in script form, where mm-hmm. you're writing the scenes, all the pre-written scenes, the scenes between Borat and Tutar, the scenes in the beginning and end, that the book and the story, those are written in more traditional script form. And then the scenes with the real people, you obviously, we, we don't tell people what, what to say. So those are just kind of a half a page uh, synopsis here. They go to a whatever, they go to a this and, and maybe this could happen, and with a few possible jokes and then move mm-hmm. on. And that's kind of the version I got. It was probably 60 or 70 pages um, and um, and somewhere between a script and an outline.
3: I was thinking you mentioned the, the sort of frat guys that liked the first one a lot. And I that's like when I think of the movie coming out, I feel like it previewed in my college. And they were like guys already dressed like Borat for Halloween before the movie came out. Oh, wow. And and did were there any conversations about being more deliberate about how jokes were received. Like, I think about, like, all the bros who are, like, making, like, the sleeve of wizard joke or whatever. Like, there are... There are in the first part, there are jokes that are... I still pointed at misogyny, but could be misconstrued as, this is a joke I can use as a misogynist to be... Mis-. What are the conversations about, like, we need to make our angle clear, knowing just how the first one was received, knowing that it's going to be reaching a wide audience. You have less control over things like that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Every like every hour of every day we would pick apart. <laughs> we would say, "Wait, is this a joke about misogyny or is this a misogynist joke?" Got it. Because of of everything with the daughter of of yeah, showing a young girl in a cage or all these, you know, different versions where she was different l- levels of feral or how he would mistreat her, treat her, you know, um use a dog clicker or whatever and be like wait is this uh, if is this the right kind of laugh or the wrong kind of laugh is this just being horrible to a young woman or is this illustrating it and a lot of times in scenes like that what's funny is not how he's treating her it's it's say like in the um farm feed store it's the real person's yeah. complete acceptance of this insane way that he's treating her okay. and that's what's funny and shocking and and if that is clear enough, that makes it, uh, to us, that that made it worth including and not a misogynist joke. But there was also lots of discussions, for instance, about uh, the Wuhan flu song that he sings at that rally where we were just like, well, are we just singing a hateful song to right-wing people and showing <laughs> yeah. them enjoy it and not even, you know, like to what end? It's like, wait, is this going to just become... An anthem for hateful people (laughs) and so yeah there and we were saying well if we can really show people actually cheerfully singing along to chop them up like the saudis do first the intention of it should be really clear um there Mm -hmm. shouldn't be any uh, you know we can't help what any what, what what everyone does with it after the fact but we can only control you know, what we put in the movie and, and if we feel like we've done a good job of making the intention of the joke clear, that's that's where our control really ends. Um and then we're you know, and, and we just have to decide is it worth it to make that point, to reveal that, is it is it worth putting this out into the to the world? I mean and then, you know, I was watching yeah, I was watching the footage of that day, and you're seeing a guy see high in the audience in a public event. It's like, yeah, fuck these people. Yeah, good. I think that is
3: the moment where you're like, got it. This is not like an I'm on a boat situation where like people who are on a boat will... Like, it is clear. You know the angle so hard. It's clear what side people are on.
2: Yeah, and the angle... I mean, look, the angle in this movie is a lot clearer in the first one. The first one, this stuff, is a lot more subtle. It's not a partisan movie in the same way. It's not... You know, it's making similar points, but it's doing it in, in kind of a more uh, subtle way. These are less subtle times. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and so, I mean, look, I mean, this is all pre-January 6th, too. I mean, right now there's no there's no kind of both sides or um, there's no reason to be like, well, let's pretend to be you know more <laughs> yeah. neutral and you can figure it out. It's like, no, everything we were saying in the movie is is so much more undeniably true right now with with what that movement is. Um, so. So, yeah, I feel good about all that stuff. Um, and and that was a whole other thing
3: you, you mentioned table reads would you be table obviously you would be table reading the clearly scripted parts would you then be sort of like improvising these scenes of these what what the the parts with the real people would you be then essentially like casting those real people be like pretend you are a minister or whatever the,
2: the table i mean we basically kind of flesh it out into something more of a traditional script for the table read which is also why i think the table reads really the only purpose were to show will the structure generally work is this a story we could follow because those real those real people scenes yeah none of them in the movie resembled anything like these kind of demo versions that we did in the table read and the laughs we would get in those had no bearing on whether the scene actually worked in real life because they really just depended on who the real person was you know would Y- y- you know what happened on the day that kind of stuff
3: so so let's talk about the the crisis pregnancy center scene it's a culmination of a series of events that have to build up to it and so much as like you know it's classic early second act stuff but you have to need her to eat the baby at the cupcake but for to set that up you have to have in the beginning borat's boss ask for a cake so where did the sort of how, did, how does a scene like this start of a sort of a germ of an idea and then get to the point where we are like, okay, well, we're, this is how it's all going to connect together?
2: So the germ of this idea um, was uh, Jenna Friedman, uh, who is a brilliant comedian writer, who um, came in and was like, "You, we have to do something. Uh, about these crisis pregnancy centers. And most of the writer, most of us weren't familiar with them. Mm-hmm. And she, and she's like, yeah, most people aren't familiar with them, which if, if you don't know what they are, it is basically these um, Christian organizations that set up that look like abortion clinics, essentially, or yeah. women's health centers or Planned Parenthoods. Um, and they just say women's health or pregnancy center or something that doesn't tell you that they have a religious affiliation. There's often no religious iconography. It, they're often made to look like doctor's offices and they yeah, say come yeah. in and get a pregnancy test and uh, and we'll give you help there are options and they kind of make you think that one of the options is that you can terminate the pregnancy and then when you go in um, and you say yeah you know if a young woman would say oh I, I'm, I'm pregnant and it was a mistake and i'd like you know to um, explore ending it they'll say to you well first off before you do that Ah, uh, you should know that God loves your baby and doesn't want mm. it to die, <laughs> and and just kind of do all of these very intense psychological things on a young woman to um, to get her to keep the baby. Um, and Vice did a really good undercover thing uh, that we saw that's on YouTube, and so we learned all about these things. And so and she's like, "You have to do something." And we're like, oh, "Okay, yeah. Well, it's that's, that's definitely the type of thing that we would do in this movie. Is that going to be?" too dark and too much of a bummer and 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 so jenna kind of came in with a lot of the idea and then you know the room kind of tossed it around and punches it up but um but it was like well what if we could set up a situation where she eats a baby doll or something like that she's yeah. telling it to this pastor there who is kind of you know masquerading as, as a medical professional or whatever and she's saying you know i have a baby inside me i need to take it out i i you know and then revealed that her her father is the one who got her pregnant and <laughs> and so it's kind of and it's a lot of the my favorite stuff in the movie is taking you know this is kind of a classic comedy setup of this yeah. misunderstanding but it's doing it in the real world with a real person playing the you know quote unquote straight man so yeah. the person who doesn't understand and you have these two kind of clowns it's like and, who's on
3: first and the other person <laughs> yeah. literally is a baseball manager who's We're, confused.
2: <laughs> right. And every detail that she's repeating that we already know when she phrases it, it kind of escalates it where, oh, he did it. You know, he said uh, you know, he would give me a treat and that's why he did it in the alley so no one can see it. And it's just we know in this guy's head it's the most horrible thing. And so it's doing like kind of almost a traditional comedy setup, but using a real person. But on top of that, you have this very clear satirical angle which is the kind of thing that makes it perfect for this movie which is ultimately you have a pastor faced with a young woman um saying <laughs> that she's pregnant with a baby that and this is you know horrible to say as as plain as it is but she's saying this is a product of incestuous rape and he's telling her no you have to keep this baby. Yeah, yeah. So it's doing this extraordinarily dark thing but in this kind of very familiar um comedy setup and so we're like yeah if we could get that to work <laughs> um, that could be that could be a really funny memorable crazy scene um and so then it, it you know we, we wrote that up and honestly that was one of the scenes actually when we knew the jokes of that yeah. one and so that was probably one of the scenes where in the table read because that's mostly what's funny is the jokes and a very straight reaction from the person where we were just hoping we would get someone who really would would just say you have to keep the baby it doesn't matter it's all in God's plan, faced with this uh, unimaginably horrible situation. And, um, and so we then set about finding a place that would do this, and that took months and months and months. It was the hardest, one of the hardest things for the field team to book because these places are so non-trusting of, yeah. you know, a company comes in and says that we want to film you. Um, these places have been screwed over before. They... You know, and look, they believe this stuff. That's this is their movement. This is they believe it's, you know, it's as simple as, as murder and, and that's that. And um and that and that's the most important thing to them. And so and it took a while, and we had, you know, there's all these things that the field team does that um are kind of all these this very delicate process and, and then finally we found a place and, and we and we filmed it there. And even that there were hours and hours and hours that went into that day. That kind of all led up to that, mm-hmm. um, and, um, and yeah. How then, do you prepare
3: uh, on that? How do you prepare with the act? Do you, pre- you know? Are you rehearsing that day to sort of make it clear what the jokes are? How do you set up a scene like that? Because they, you know, like, how does a day like this really produce itself?
2: We were on the road and the schedule was very tight, and the scenes would change all the time. That was a scene we knew we had to do for a while. And we would typically rehearse the scenes the night before with Sasha and Maria in a hotel room wherever we were. And we would, you know, this is pre-COVID, we'd crowd uh, like a little crew, with someone from each department and know. Because at the same time, we're still coming up with ideas for props and for jokes and yeah. this and that. So we have uh, writers and we have... Uh, Rebecca Tendick, who created all these incredible props for the movie, like just spur of the moment with zero resources, and we have our ad, Duncan White, and we, ha- you know, we just have um, this tight little room. We rehearse it. We come up with ideas, and and the writers are kind of typing up every new joke we come up. They come up with um, during that and preparing them so that Sasha and Maria can learn these jokes. Because basically, what we do is rehearse different scenarios and if this real person says this here's something you can say yeah. and if they say this if it goes in this direction here's something you can say and here's the basic concept of the scene this is these are lines we need that we know we love and we want to get and then here's some other things oh if this happens this could happen and then but also so much of it they would just improvise and really come up with something new and follow a, a scene and that was some of my favorite stuff where, where Sasha and Maria would just find something new and indulge in it and take it to a place mm-hmm. but at the same time you can't it's not like a regular improv scene where you can just say action and and let actors go wild and say, okay, let's do another take more reined in. It all has to exist within the confines of actual reality for this real person. Um, and it can never feel like a comedy sketch or, or, a, or a shoot like that in any way.
3: Yeah, I want to talk about that. I feel like, you know, for the last, I don't know, a couple decades, people are like, you know, we're going to have heightened characters, but it's going to be grounded. It's going to be real. And... It's hard to know what that means because, like, it's still a fictional thing. But here you have heightened characters, and it actually has to feel real. And you are you are seeing this firsthand. What does that look like? What does it mean to see this happen? I just sort of can't imagine it. Because, like, to us, like, we already know it's a joke. But, like, you're there, and you have to be—you're playing a part, and you're not on camera, hypothetically. Like, you're being a documentary filmmaker or
2: whatever. I'm playing a part—I'm— I'm blonde, first of all. I don't look like myself. I have, like, an actual look. My name is Chris. Um, I have... I bleached my hair for most of the last year to do this. It does this. seem
3: like two Jews, like, what should we name a not-Jewish person? It's like, yeah, oh, short. yes, his name is Christopher.
2: Short for Christ. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, no, I would... Uh, I mean, yeah, we, he just thought it would i mean he's done this for a long time he's like you need to look um a little less jewish and more trustworthy to the people in the deep south and he was completely right i'll tell you in that because sometimes people do there are all these things that we do that sasha does before the cameras are filming there's a lot of reality setting so that Mm. it's not just cameras crazy guy walks in says jokes and leaves there's a lot of kind of massaging. There's a lot of off-camera things. There's a lot of care that goes into doing things that would never seem like... why. If you were doing a joke, why would you do this? And most people aren't set up to examine this environment in that way. So we have ways of just kind of getting... Uh, what we call our guests in the mode of well this must be real or if something strange happens well that's not what it was about that's just something actually going wrong yeah um I'll tell you one example this is the first day of shooting um, when we're in the hairdresser the hair salon and um, and and the the um, hairdresser is like let me um can I see your hair and Maria pulls her skirt up and um, And it's like this very uncomfortable moment. Right after that, uh, the woman looked over with a real like, what the fuck is this look on her face? Like, she was like, okay, hang on. (laughs) Cause we did that right away. As soon as they walked in, she's like, can I see there? And she's flashing her. So that was a very aggressive way to begin that shoot. And she's like, hang on. And I come out, cause I'm just like hidden around the corner. I think I was in like a little uh, cubby or something in that place in a real hair salon. And I come out, what's going on? What's wrong? And I, and, and here's what we did. And this is just, this wasn't planned, but both of our instincts just went right to this is Maria started crying Mm -hmm. and I went over to comfort her and I was like, no, you didn't do anything wrong. This is a cultural thing. You misunderstood. It's a language thing. And I think it's if I had gone over to the hair uh, stylist and was like, nothing wrong happened. This is (laughs) real. These aren't characters. That would only be like okay well now you're trying to convince me because i went to comfort maria and she really was crying and she's like did i do something wrong that kind of short-circuited her doubt um yeah. because that wouldn't make any sense if this was a joke <laughs> and so and so there was one moment in so so my name is chris i'm blonde I'm shooting this thing. I, I'm generally not even acting like I'm paying attention because there are, you know, when he's saying these weird things. Like if I was actually a director yeah. and I was watching and he's confessing to getting his daughter pregnant, I would, I would come in or I would. The guy would talk to me. And I'd be like, "Yeah, this is a disaster. I'm so sorry." Generally, I'm acting like I'm not paying attention when I'm, act- I actually am. <laughs> so if they come and say something to me, which happened a few times, I could be like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I was on a call." <laughs> and so, <laughs> <what>? <laughs> and so. <laughs> So the one, the one thing that happened there is sometimes we push it too far. I think Sasha made maybe said one or two lines that just pushed it a little too far. That was after we were after we got what we wanted. You, yeah. you kind of his whole thing is just pushing as far as far as possible, seeing what we can get. Obviously, it's all about pushing everything to the extreme, and occasionally there'll be one joke that just feels a little too much like a leading thing or a joke or something. And so the guy, the pastor in that scene, comes out and he's like, hey, can I talk to you, Chris? I was like, oh, yeah, what? <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, uh, "He's like something is going on here. Yeah. I don't know what it is. But that guy in there, who he had believed up until that point was completely legit, just kind of a weird foreign guy. He's like, he just said this one thing, I think, about Donald Trump. I, it, th- it sounded like a joke. To- he's like, look. And I was like, oh, fuck. Is he get? are we, you know, busted or whatever? He goes. I think that guy might be pranking you. (gasps) I said, what? He says, I, he goes, I don't know what his deal is, but I wouldn't be surprised if he had like a hidden camera on him or something. And I was just blown away. I was like, wow, that's how good this blonde hair is (laughs) that you're not thinking of the three non-hidden cameras that are right in your face in that room. so So how do you get out of that we make some calls we say there's a misunderstanding you didn't mean that and you just kind of you finesse the situation and that was i mean that that was one part of the directing job i I think it was todd shillman who used to do a lot of that on who's america and just kind of make things okay and then i mean there's certain you know there are certain scenes where you can't debbie tom ball i couldn't we just had to escape police came um they came to like beat the shit out of me (laughs) and like i had to escape out the back i heard people running down the stairs telling where the fuck is chris and uh the cameraman was saying there were, like, eight guys, uh, like, pulling their coats off to, like, beat me up. But, um, yeah, sometimes you can't talk your way out of it. But then sometimes you, you try to smooth things over and, and and just get out of there.
3: We'll be right back with more Jason Mulliner.
0: Most weight loss programs focus on restriction and inflexible routine, which is why most diets fail. Noom can help you build healthy habits while still enjoying your favorite foods. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
1: Canva presents Unexplained Appearances,
3: And we're back with Jason Wollner. Um, I, I want to ask you this about using real people. And it's a thing that I think about like this, or I thought about with Nathan for you, which, you know, the, the, the idea of punching up and punching down is sort of thrown around a lot and sort of just communicates the idea of like, there's a power imbalance between the subject and, and the target. And this is not meant to be like provocative, like, but, you know, here's this dude, as you reveal, like clearly morally dubious, but. Though he rep and he represents a sort of larger problem. You know, you guys are you know wealthy members of the cultural elite or whatever, and and minimum, you know what's happening, and he doesn't. You know, do you how do you think about it in those terms? How do you how do you feel about it? How do you account for that?
2: Yeah, to me, I mean, it's just about determining case by case is it worth it? Is revealing this worth it, uh, for you know, the cost of what whatever that is? If it is someone who is what I would consider to be actively doing harm in the world, even if they're at a different, you know, I'm not, I don't know what that, for instance, that pastor's (laughs) level of society is, but I have no problem using him. I'm not saying he's an evil person. He has very different beliefs, but to me it's worth it to be able to um, use him to reveal this attitude uh, that I do think, I mean, good good people do a lot of harm in the world or people with good intentions do a lot of harm. And, you know, even someone like, the woman in the cake shop who is very sweet who i i don't know her at all i i had no reason to think she's evil um but that scene is you know he comes in and asks her to write jews will not replace us on a cake and i mean that was that was there was no finessing. that was the first minute of that shoot (laughs) we walked in and uh and she's like okay and even if she's not anti-semitic right there if it makes the tens of millions of people who are going to see this think about, you know, um, compliance and complicity when evil things are asked of you or are happening Mm -hmm. around you or think, you know, that to me brings up an interesting enough point, could be thought-provoking enough that uh, makes that kind of thing worth it uh, for sure.
3: The other thing I think, you know, like in journalism, there's like a general moral question of whether you should help people or be a neutral observer, right? Like, you know, if you're something's happening, you're like, should I help this person on the ground? Or write that someone's on the ground, you know? For people like like Jim and Jerry, the, the guys who Borat lives with for five days, who seem, like, completely poisoned by QAnon, but otherwise seem like really sweet guys and really care for Borat, do you feel like, oh, maybe we should tell them, to like, do you... How... like i understand why you do like we clearly talked about like but part of you how do you think about like is there a way at the end of this we can also like help get these guys out of it are you ultimately like that's not my job i just i'm curious like i'm not not saying you should that's
2: so interesting i mean i never even consider trying to get those guys out of you know being trump supporters or, or or what have you i think um it certainly wasn't. I didn't feel like my job to try to change anyone's attitudes. In that, it felt like we could find people and shoot with them and use these scenes to illustrate certain broader things. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked Jim and Jerry. I, I I enjoyed spending time with them. We lived in that house for days. Like I feel like their brains are poisoned. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and I was just watching some deleted stuff with with an interview with Jim. And he's this is from a year ago and he's talking about things that you would think that he said them last week because they relate so specifically to what we're seeing happen right now. And to me, filming with those guys is, is such a clear line to the moment we're in right now. Um I I didn't think there was any convincing. I didn't think I was yeah. gonna save anybody from from Trumpism in this movie.
3: Can you say how you found those guys? Was that like a was that just luck? I mean like I or you maybe can't say that. Like of all There's people. No,
2: I, you know, they just do a nationwide search for people, basically. We Because yeah. we had to look through, for this movie, thousands and thousands of people. Because not only are we finding people that don't know who Borat is, don't know who Sasha is. We're also finding people who don't know who he is, who are willing to be... On camera as part of the you know everyone almost everyone in the movie knows they're in this film yeah. project they don't know exactly what it is but so the people who don't know who he is who are willing to be on camera but who also you don't feel bad for who don't feel you know helpless or, or feel like they're being exploited it's people who have a sense of self who can defend themselves who believe you know who have convictions and 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 carry themselves with a certain amount of confidence so that you know we never want it to be like we're just bullying mm-hmm. people um and and so, yeah, I don't actually know the specifics because at the time we would see these people, it would just be field team being like, oh, we have these possibilities, you know, these, and we've met these people and we saw those guys and we say, oh, those, it would be great for Borat. If we can make that happen, it would be so great if Borat could, could live with those guys for a few days. And then we had to figure out how to how to do that.
3: You mentioned the um, the debutante ball and the guys were trying to uh, beat you up or there's the gun rally thing where it seemed like it's also quite dangerous. I know... Sasha had to wear a bulletproof vest on that. You know, I'll never forget the first time I listened to Sasha on WTF years ago, and he talked about getting sort of addicted to the danger of really pushing it and really being with real people in that way. Like, And he was talking about the Bruno scene where it really felt like maybe the most dangerous thing he's ever done. But he's also talking about a little bit like you get addicted to it, you want to see how far you can push things. As you mentioned, he wants to see how far he can get it. Having now been exposed to it, one, sort of what was scary, and do you find yourself also having now this desire to sort of chase that going forward?
2: That's, you know, the people who have worked on his stuff in the past say that it's very hard to go back to normal stuff because you don't, there is such a, when you get away with something, you get, it's such a rush that it is like the closest to being like able to like rob banks legally (laughs) because, you know, so much work is put into making sure we're not doing anything illegal ever. Um, And at the same time, the cops were called so many times, not because people think that we're doing a comedy movie. It's because people don't know what's going on. They think you're like robbing them or something. Yeah, cause yeah. you're acting, cause you're here with a crew and you're acting so shady. And this guy is doing this weird things and you're escape. Like, there's just like, it feels like there's a crime, but there's actually never any kind of crime. But then there is a lot of, uh, escaping from the cops, <laughs> and and, um, and 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 CPAC, you know, Secret Service too. There's Secret Service everywhere, and I'm running this whole thing f- over WhatsApp basically. Yeah. um And 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 uh, and people are eyeballing me, and I'm sitting next to you know just regular attendees, and I'm clapping at you know speeches and. I mean, it's nerve-wracking, and uh, and he was detained after that and eventually let go. Um, this is a very specific high, because you're doing this stuff with the best and basically only person in the world who does this, and Sasha is able to do these things because millions of people love them. It's not, um, he's able to get the resources to do it right, mm-hmm. so that we can have, the you know, s- security measures in place and legal measures in place and have the best first amendment lawyer in the world to really figure out we call him every day in the middle of the night can we do this can we do this and sometimes it's like, no you can't do that or you know most of the time it's like oh yeah i'd love to i'd love to do that yeah if you get get that if that goes to trial i'd love to defend it like just a very <laughs> bold lawyer who's a genius who knows everything and and you know it's rare that you get that kind of resource and yeah. this ambition to push things as far as as possible at the same time you know i have I have movies I want to do. I have other things I want to do that uh, you know, wouldn't involve getting chased from cops. So, I, I mean, it's great, though. It's super fun. I would definitely... I imagine I'll do something more like it one day, but, I, you know, hopefully a mix.
3: I, I'm Maybe this is an editing question, but I'm curious with sort of a balance for a scene like this. You know, the person is real, but if you do too good of a job it strains the credulity for the viewer. Like you just, especially if you're in a skeptical person, it's like when they're watching magic, they're like, well, that can't." like, it's almost like if it's too good, how do you account for this?
2: That's what happened with Janice, the babysitter is we, that was also the first week of shooting. And that was the kind of the first thing that went really great. And that was the first time that that was really, Maria was in character the whole day with her, including hours when we weren't shooting and she was just staying in character. And and just hang out with Janice, and I mean, there's a whole scene, a sequence we shot where she takes her downtown to a city, and like they explore together, and we just kind of cut it for time. But um, they had a real adventure together, and um, and Janice reacted so, you know, perfectly to everything Borat did, and also when we when she's in the car and telling her she's gonna go get plastic surgery, reacted better than we ever could have hoped, and was really real with her and genuine, and saying you're beautiful, mm-hmm. you don't need to change. You know, we didn't give her, we don't tell people what to say, we just hope for the, we, we try to get the right person and then hope that they'll, you know, say, the, say things that work for the story or what we want. And Janice was, you know, beyond our wildest expectations to the point that we came back and showed that to a few friends, like a, a small pool, and people were like, so wait, so she was an actor? And we're like, no, 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 she's real, she's real. And people were like, oh, are people going to think she was an actor? Yeah. We did something in the editing where we we on the la- one of the last passes of editing, like the scene in the car, first thing we did was take all the music out of that scene. We had score in that scene that was kind of low emotional score about her trying to convince her not to get the surgery. That made it feel more filmic or mm. more even like a reality show because of how it looked with these little dashboard cams we took the music out of it suddenly if it, it felt more real felt like a real conversation and then we edited in i believe every uh, we had a lot of editors who pass on this i think it was might have been eric notarnicola did a little pass of just adding in a few more hesitations false starts of words pauses stuff that wasn't perfect yeah uh, some of the editing and I remember this on when I worked on Nathan for you too, is some of the editing is making, leaving in some imperfections too, so that your brain doesn't think, well, this is just fake. This is written. Um, it's just kind of, there's a little, a few little moves you can do that make it clear. And then of course, the other thing that came that happened is when the movie came out, um, Janice went public and talked about it. And, and, you know, there's this whole thing um, where, you know, ultimately it was, it was great and, and ended well. Um, but, um, I, I should hope convince anyone beyond the shadow yeah. of a dad that she is is just a, a legit, real, wonderful person.
3: Um, so the, this movie, maybe more than anything else, really gets at sort of the dangers of misinformation. You know, propaganda is not new, but with, you know, it's different with social media and a postmodernist lack of agreed upon truths and in institutions and the loss of context that the internet fosters. And the movie captures that in particular, how all that feeds into the sort of right-wing Um, information universe however this movie in its own right blurs truth and fiction in its way it's part of what's so exciting about it you know is things are real things are not real you know but maybe to some particularly not media savvy people they don't know where that line is have you ever thought about how though you're not contributing to this conspiracy theories you maybe are like further playing into a time in which reality and fiction are continuing to be blurred.
2: We did everything we could. It's a great question. We were tried to be Thank very you. intentional about which parts of the movie were real with real people with non-actors, mm-hmm. unscripted, you know, unrehearsed where you know, we have our two characters with real people who are really just reacting or in their own environments or or being completely real versus the scenes that are fake the scenes in kazakhstan the scenes um between borat and tutar when they're what we call the horse box uh which is an english uh term for horse trailer but now i call it a horse box because i've been around english people for a year and a half um but uh you know we tried to be very clear with that um and something even like like for instance when he runs into tom hanks at the end uh, yeah. in that montage you know shot that in a very stagey way that's green screen there's a mm. you know sydney opera house behind him because you know it almost it looks like a late night thing or something you know like we wanted to beyond the shadow of a doubt because that thing would only be a few seconds long make sure it was very clear that we didn't actually ambush tom hanks because also no one would believe that tom hanks doesn't know who borat is. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that so and that was something I tried to be very intentional about because I think you don't want to, you don't want that layer of confusion on top of the kind of, already it's a lot of, I think, mental work for a viewer in this movie specifically to go between these kind of classic Borat interactions with real people and then go back into this, I'm watching a story that I'm supposed to be emotionally invested in mode of their like horsebox scenes at night. So, but... Yeah, we did. We did. You know everything we could to to clearly delineate kind of who was real versus mm. who was uh, just a, a character.
3: Oh, side note: when Tutar and Borat are speaking, what language are they speaking? Are they speaking the same language? Are they speaking? No, they're language?
2: not. No, no. <laughs> um, so Maria, who plays Tutar, is speaking Bulgarian because she's from Bulgaria, and then Sasha is speaking. Kind of a a combination of, uh, I think, Hebrew with some Polish, maybe. Mm. I I don't know how much gibberish it is. I think it's a lot of Hebrew and Polish and and that stuff. And then, actually, the guy who plays Nazarbayev is speaking Romanian, because we shot that in Romania. Uh, It did give us the ability to change what they Mm. were saying after the fact, because I think, like, there was a version where he's going to the cake store to get a cake for Nazarbayev, and then um there were other versions of why they went inside and yeah. that was a subtitle that changed a few times when we we're like oh wait we could set that up and that's what brings him to the cake shop and then you know like so yeah, yeah. Some, sometimes we would kind of retrofit ideas you know as the story evolved backwards oh we could set this up and have him say this and then have that you know something like when they pick rudy in the in the um in the pickup truck that was a scene where we kind of reconceived the scene after we shot it to be that's what she's showing him on the phone and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. You know, originally, yeah, it was uh, something that happened in the fax store. And, you know, that's just like an editing thing that, yeah. that evolved. Yeah.
3: So let's talk about Rudy. So both you and Sasha have been pretty clear what you thought of it, which is that is not how he would have acted with a male reporter. That is not how someone takes off a mic. Um, after, you know, after the news came out, but before the movie came out, I wrote a piece less about the scene and more about the reaction to to the news of it, a piece that, as I was telling you before, your dad emailed me about that he enjoyed. <laughs> yes. So your dad endorses it. So not sure you read it, but I, I will summarize it to the, any listeners who hadn't. But so I found the news coming out sort of inevitable, but a little bit of a bummer, because I think it sort of overshadows that you actually made a movie that was really impressive. And I also think it reduced the points you're making a little bit. It sort of became, oh, this is the movie where they get Rudy Giuliani, not this sort of movie where they depict the state of America. Um and, you know, also it sort of overwhelms like, you know, Maria's performance and scene, which is incredible. And it 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 does this thing that happens so often where comedians get lauded for the things they do opposed to like the fact that they are comedians that have successfully made comedy. They're like Thank you, Sasha. You're a great political force, opposed to like you made art, um, which is not necessarily mutually exclusive. How did it feel for y'all? Did you feel like, you know, walk me through it? Maybe, you know, partly it's exciting because, like, obviously there's all this attention to the movie, but also it's now all the attention is this one part of it.
2: Yeah. I mean, from where I was standing, it all felt very positive. I felt I, mm-hmm. I didn't mind it at all because to me, the bigger concern with, you know, obviously so much changed when COVID happened in terms of this movie. We incorporated it in the movie. We decided, you know, it was originally with Universal. It was going to be in movie theaters. That yeah. was one of the things I was most excited about was kind of getting a shot to do a similar experience to what I had and what everyone had 14 years ago. And then the world shut down. And, you know, of the million things that, that are fallout from that, it became very clear that if we wanted to put this movie in theaters that wasn't going to happen before probably, yeah. you know, this spring or summer. And there was a version, we could have rewritten a ton of it and made it not about the Trump era and gambled that he would lose. Uh, but, you know, it, we kept going back to we want to, that was the reason for the genesis. We want to, it wasn't just to make money. You know, yeah. it, was, it was to get this out before the election. It was to give a snapshot of how America has changed under Trump. Um. So to me, the big concern with moving to streaming into amazon was just the streaming landscape which is it's so hard for anything to kind of make mm. a splash in the way that that movie did in the way that you know that, that nothing really blows up almost nothing you know and, and at that point this is you know early late summer early fall we'd spent the better part of the year in covid lockdown and I mean what was there Tiger King there was like very yeah. little culturally I think because we were all like in this kind of depressed just like pause of like well let's just stop everything even yeah. though things came out nothing was catching fire and the other thing was a week before the most like tense election probably of certainly of our lifetimes is anyone gonna want to watch this movie is anyone yeah. gonna want to laugh at this Is anyone want to talk about this by the time we put this out, is is everyone just going to be completely sick of Trump or of co? Is anyone going to be willing to have a, watch a movie where COVID is any part of it when we've just been living in this nightmare all year? So those were all my concerns. Of you know, I had much bigger concern that it would just kind of go out and disappear into the noise uh, of mm-hmm. politics and and of of the streaming kind of world. So we so we were able to keep it secret until a few, I think, three weeks before we 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 released the movie. And then the review embargo lifted and and the, it was the day after Rudy uh tried to put out that yeah. hunter Biden laptop thing i think i think then the Guardian did a story uh with that with that kind of i think now iconic image of him lying on bed with uh, on the bed with his hand down his pants and her standing above him and uh it just felt, I mean, it was. Like, I think the cover of the New York Times, it was like the biggest story in the world. So, yeah. I mean, when you have a scene in your movie that's the one of the biggest stories in the world, it's hard to complain about it. So, yes, at the same time, it did become the thing, yeah. but I think that's what anyone could possibly want is a reason for everyone to have to watch something. And so then, you know, even at that time, no one had heard of Maria Bakalova. Like, that was, yeah. so that was that weekend... And so I feel like it did work out the best because it got everyone aware of it and watching it, and it became this cultural moment. And then everyone saw it, and millions of people fell in love with her and loved the two of them together, and saw you know, and and, and really loved the movie. And so I I, ha- I have no complaints at all about how it how it kind of went down.
3: Did you? What were the sort of contingencies like? You know, what what if Rudy didn't work out? What like you were just did you? What if he stopped? <laughs> At the earlier stuff, like, where, what were your beats? What are your outs? Like, obviously, this is, like, I can't imagine you would want, expect anything more that was also, like, not dangerous and, like, terrible to put a person in. Like, it really was exactly where I imagine you'd want to stop. I mean,
2: there was a chance, you know, he comes in, as Sasha comes in as, as a sound guy early on. There was a chance that rudy sees this guy who looks like a peter sellers character yeah. and is doing this insane voice and he's just like he leaves right then you know there was a, a chance that would happen we hoped that it wouldn't happen but it could have just blown like all these scenes every scene we do we know it could blow up immediately yeah. and we face that a lot and things just you know sometimes things wouldn't work out and there were a lot of days where by the middle of the day it was a complete disaster by the end of the day we had gotten something magical and, and great um and that was the same thing. We just rehearsed it with Maria in steps. And okay, if this happens, this and this happens, this. And you know, we didn't know he was going to lie down in the bed and, yeah, you know, do that. And like, that was that was great. If that hadn't worked, we we had backups of other. We had other people we could try. But Rudy was the first. And I'll only say this because it's already been made public. There was a story last week. Because um, otherwise, I don't generally talk about plans that don't work yeah. out. Um, be, but. Um, but we had the my pillow guy you know booked we were gonna shoot with him and i was like yeah there's a version where that's funnier it's so low stakes but that guy is you know horrible piece of shit and it would be great to fuck him over and (laughs) and um and and that would have been funny but we wanted you know we were hoping to get something with with rudy um
3: in what ways is this a jason wallner movie
2: that's a good question. I, you know, I, I, I don't think there's one kind of simple way. I feel like I can, I can talk about, you know, there's like specific structural things I gave or scenes that I, that I really pushed or encouraged or scenes that I really thought were the wrong direction, which we didn't wind up going. You know, it's really on a job like this, there's something my my i think my career has kind of been divided in these two paths where uh, this one where i'm kind of just like a f- facilitator mm-hmm. of things of, of of the work of people i love so i like i went like uh, such a mr show fan growing up and then i got to do the bob and david thing when they uh, brought brought it back and and got the whole team back together and i got to direct that and that was a dream come true or you know i got to i grew up worshiping chris elliot and then got to like do a show with him and and there's been a few examples of that where I've just I I I you know I started as just a massive fan of of what yeah. I was a fan of and and loved it deeply and um and studied it and and just have had the good fortune of being asked by certain heroes to, to kind of help them with their next thing or help bring something back or help further something and 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 so that's kind of one one path and then this other path uh, you know is stuff that i that on my own like i was saying it's generally harder to get going it's more conceptual it's it's uh it's you know also eagle heart it's these gelman things that are more of a collaboration you know brett and i came up together we didn't i, I didn't grow up you know worshiping him but but we made these things that were very personal to us and, and very powerful for us and, and meant a lot and so and and this felt like somehow uh a convergence of of yeah. kind of these two modes that i have of this like for hire helping make more of what I love mode and then also I I genuinely care about this this is something I feel like needs to exist and I feel like only I could be doing for whatever reason and so yeah you know I I grew up worshiping Borat and and Sasha's work and um but also I felt like no I really um I feel like me involved in this is going to make it a specific thing that that I can really help shape
3: is there, are there moments or is there a moment you can think of where you go, that's Jason, where you like, or maybe, or another way of even thinking about it, like, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, when you look back at your career and Borat is now part of a series of projects, right. how is Borat going to fit into it? How, how, what are the things, you know, when they play a greatest hits reel at your whatever award?
2: <laughs> My funeral. Um, I... Gosh, I don't know. That's such a good question. I don't know. Cause to me, like the the whole thing is I, I just feel like I I was able to and I also didn't know, having not worked with him before, I didn't know would I just be kind of sidelined or yeah. is it is a director in his mind because it's 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 it goes without saying, it's much more of a Sasha Baron Cohen movie than a Jason Wallner movie. <laughs> and and so the question going in was how much will I be able to impact what the final movie is? And when we got into editing, you know, the editing was so quick. You were editing along the way, but when we were actually done filming to delivering the movie to Amazon was like less than a month.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and I basically assumed, I was like, I will be probably asked to leave at this point. I'm not a producer on the movie. I have no, they, beyond a director's cut, which is kind of a formality uh, yeah. often on something like this. Like I was like, do I, will I have any role in this? Um, and I was I was in the edit till the very last day um that we yeah. basically locked in and, and so i was doing because it was actually we were actually doing a director's cut alongside uh other cuts that were going on because it was all moving so fast and then i would do cuts of scenes and just and throw it in front of him and we throw it in front of an audience we would screen over zoom we would screen in australia when when covet you know it was safer to go to theaters and so there isn't like one. I mean, there's jokes I can tell you. You know, there's there's jokes. Uh, you know, here at the uh, end
3: of this answer, you're gonna have to tell me one joke, and then we can move on.
2: Okay, <laughs> I need to think of one joke. I need to think of a good joke. I mean, I because like I, it was. Yeah, and I don't even know because I might be remembering wrong. I hate to take credit for something mm-hmm. that I that actually was was someone else in the room, but um. I don't know. It's it's so collaborative. I'd have to think through the entire movie. Again. Yeah, go through again. every line and tell me,
3: oh, I wrote that one sentence.
2: Like, um, I think I was originally, I mean, I pushed for Maria, you know, just because I watched every... Sasha watched lots of auditions, hundreds of auditions, but I, I made sure I watched and studied every audition. And, you know, of the hundreds and hundreds, I think I was probably the first person to watch hers and say, I really, I think this person is, is special bring that to, to and we started, you know, lobbying him and, yeah. and, you know, if anything, probably that was maybe my greatest impact was quote unquote, discovering her, but really just finding, trying to find, uh, out of hundreds and hundreds of auditions, the spark.
3: Um, why do you think Maria should be nominated for an Oscar?
2: Um, because I, I, you know, I said to her on the first day, when when I think she was maybe a little like shaken up or did I do a good job after like the first day of shooting the hairdresser and stuff. And I, and I said to her, I don't know if she remembers this, but I said, yeah, no, I think you're going to get an Oscar for this. <laughs> and it was just an instinct of like, oh, if you have someone that no one in America has heard of or seen that can go toe to toe with Sacha Baron Cohen with real people and get huge laughs in the scenes and do these scenes with him and actually make you care about this character's story and journey um, and make you emotionally invested by the end. Um, I, you know, I feel like that's so rare. I can't think of any, yeah. anything else quite like it. Yeah.
3: I will say when I watched it for, I guess, maybe the third time, this, the very last scene where they do the news report together, and then it ends and he says, like, you did a good job or something. I cried. I was like, that is so yeah, nice.
2: Yeah, oh, that's great. I was, I, I was tearing up watching it. And we were, like, watching it live when we were doing it. And, you know, not to slam anything else, anyone else, but I did drive past the billboard the other day, like a four-year consideration thing, which they have out here in L.A. everywhere. And it was talked about someone's courageous performance. And I was like, well, when you talk about courageous <laughs> acting, there is a lot of courageous acting, emotionally raw acting, very rare is acting quite literally as courageous as yeah, like yeah. being in a situation like when she does that dance just being completely like truly fearless like yeah and and sasha too like it's it's just a different definition of courageous and fearlessness and performance where you're actually you're doing a fearless raw performance but you're also you have to be fearless you have to be like well someone could like get physically violent with yeah. me <laughs> and so that it just kind of makes a joke of any other kind of acting uh being referred to as fearless yeah <laughs>
3: So that sound means it's time for our final segment which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round but because this is a comedy show it's called the laughing round. Um, Great. Sh- cool. <laughs> Great. Uh do you have a <laughs> favorite joke, joke, street joke, dad joke, joke, joke? Oh no. Joke?
2: Oh my god. <laughs> you know what I was in the situation with um Russell Crowe <laughs> back in the to tie back to the beginning. In the, like, Human Giant days, we mm-hmm. had this crazy night where Human Giant hung out with Russell Crowe accidentally. Where we were, the, the head of MTV at the time, Tony DeSanto, was, it was out in LA. We were all living in LA. And he was at the uh, Beverly Hills Hotel and invited us to, like, a dinner. And we got there, and at the table already were Carson Daly and Pauly Shore. And so it was, like, this weird multi-MTV generation mm-hmm. thing where we're like, oh wow, we're the next. And then, you know, like, so there'll be someone after us. And we had this really nice dinner. Um, and uh, and we, we didn't know Carson Daly or Polly Shore. But then at some point, Russell Crowe walks by and he's like, hey, Polly I can't do it." Sure. <laughs> Russell Crowe accent, but but just acts like Polly Shore is his best friend in the world. He's like, hey, how you guys doing? And he's like, I just had this drink, uh, prickly pear margarita, you ever had that? Oh, you gotta try it. It's great. Like this very kind of sweet uh drink. Um He's like, Yeah, get these guys around to prickly pears and he sits down and he's like, Yeah, it's too bright here. He fix that light and like the the, the white staff leaps on the table, unscrews a light bulb, just like go you know, really catering to everything he wants. We're hanging out with him for like twenty minutes and um and then he leaves and we're like, Wow, paulie you know Russell Crowe? He's like, <laughs> I don't remember ever meeting this guy before and he thought he might have, like, passed by him in a hallway at, like, Conan or something once. And so, and then we wrap it up, we're going, and then Russell Crowe pops up and goes, oh, you guys got to hang with me tonight. We hung out with him all night in this, like, little corner of the table. There was, like, this, I mean, the one thing I remember is there were these two older women sing by us, and he was just like, hey, can you get them for, you get to leave? And he got their table moved, and and he was telling us all this stuff. Like, he loves comedy, and he wanted to do, like, a... A Bill Hicks biopic, mm-hmm. and and uh, and then he was and and uh, he's telling us about that thing where he threw a phone at a guy's head, sure. and talking about the paparazzi like uh, hounding him, and he just like looks at his knees, he's like, "You couldn't handle it, mate," <laughs> and like and, but I just remember that was the last time I was put on the spot like that, where he was just like, "All right, we're going around the circle. You're all telling me your favorite joke. You're comedians. You're telling me your favorite joke." And I think I spaced then to... I,
3: when I asked Paul Shear this question, he told the exact same story and also didn't come to you.
2: That's probably the case, because that was... It's, it's a very memorable memory. <laughs>
3: um, what is the human giant sketch you're most proud of or the one you point to and go, that's me?
2: That's... Um, there was... There were a few that were more filmic. Um, like one where Aziz is haunted by the ghost of a uh, gay porn star. I remember liking, there was one called Reenactment that was about a a mass shooting on the set of a reenactment show, and they do a reenactment of that. I mean, I can't imagine any of this stuff has aged very well, (laughs) Um, um, but I liked those. Okay, here's what, the one I'm most proud of was called uh, Sci-Fi Makeup, and I wrote it, and it was about... I was at the time, I was, I really, I would already decided I didn't want to just be like a, known as a comedy director, that I was really um, determined to show those guys uh, that I could write, and and that was when I was really happy with how it came out, and it had like kind of a solid concept, which was that Paul shear played the, he's like the, AL, you know, every like Star Trek or kind of star trek ripoff show at the time had like you know a weird looking guy mm-hmm. um like an alien guy and and this was like a behind the scenes of, of a show like that and he was the alien guy and had like five hours of prosthetics every morning and thinks the show is going to go on forever and is sick of waking up early and basically gets surgery to look uh just like to make that look permanent so mm. that they remove his ears and they dye his skin and they they add all this shit to his forehead. And then, you know, of course, he walks in the next morning and the show's been canceled. And then he's trying to do, he's going on auditions, he's trying to, like, get acting work, but he has, like, an alien face <laughs> and no one understands why. And it's just this very sad thing where we just follow his life, kind of go down the tubes um, because of this stupid decision he made.
3: Um, so do you have a, a scene in something that... You shot, or in some capacity, you thought it was really, really funny that you go to your grave being like, this was so funny, and either you had to cut it out because people like, this isn't funny, or audiences didn't respond to it. But you were like, that's one of the funniest things I've done, and everyone else is wrong, or just it everyone else <laughs> isn't as right as I am about how this is so great.
2: I mean, probably Eagle Heart in general, I'm very proud of, and the world really doesn't agree. <laughs> Not that they don't like it, but for whatever reason we were never able and that was kind of like you know peak tv era where everyone was like talking about tv in this way actually vulture um and josh Wolk was one of the only places that wrote a, yeah. a piece on eagle heart that i actually like made me probably cry at the time because it was the it was like the only place that wrote about the show in the way that i hoped that someone would write about the show and everywhere else was like more or less a few exceptions but but most other places were like, "Oh, this is like a Walker Texas Ranger spoof that's on Adult Swim for people yeah, yeah. who are stoned at midnight." And Eagleheart, the third season, was an attempt to really push that to take this kind of cartoon elastic universe, but really wrap it around a very sad, uh, tragic story that had actual stakes. That wasn't that mm-hmm. was that was kind of had some humanity to it. That was just about kind of the in a very lofty way the kind of like failure of comedy uh at fighting back at the world it's like why jokes are ultimately powerless and um and you know life is you know through the the eagle heart lens was it was very dark it was kind yeah. of about the meaninglessness of, of life and the futility of anything <laughs> um but there was also joy in it and because it was also within the episodes was kind of about the joy of discovery of of one idea leaping to the next Mm -hmm. and of just being stupid and and making each other laugh so there is like joy within this kind of very dark shell but i mean for years i was just we were just scratching our heads being like why we don't understand why you know we had a few comic-con panels but it's not like people were getting eagle heart tattoos or dressing up (laughs) like, like him and we had this like I mean, at the time, and it all seems so goofy and quaint now, but we really were so jealous, I would say, of a show like Children's Hospital, which, and a lot of our friends work on that show. Yeah. I, obviously, I have dear friends who worked on it, but it had this very fun vibe, and it had this huge fan base, and it was very jokey, and we thought, well, oh, we'll get that for us. It'll just be people who are, like, a little more like our our kind of people, a little probably darker, a little more like miscreants or whatever. I think those kind of people don't respond to the things in the same way, <laughs> and, like, they don't go to Comic-Con. Like, they are <laughs> like, let's have a party at
3: this panel. They're like, let's, let's stay at home and read a book about it or whatever. Right.
2: So I still, like, I mean, if yeah, the one thing I'm probably, yeah, still kind of stubborn and wrong about is I still feel like there's an audience for that show. I mean, we're approaching 10, next, uh, in a couple of weeks, is 10 years since it started. And the first season, about half the episodes were good. The second season, I think, was really good. And the third season of it, is probably the thing so far that and maybe the second Brad Gilman special that I'm kind of most proud of, mm. of putting out. Um, and yeah, I would say it's almost completely undiscovered, but it is like the, if you watch the third season, but like the third season is like this two and a half hour movie that tells a story from beginning to end that just either the world didn't want or wasn't ready for, but maybe one day there will be enough of an audience. Um, but it is last week it got put on HBO max. So, I mean, maybe people will discover it there. That would be, uh, that would be I think fun. so. After
3: listening to this, everyone here was not going to listen to it. Wait, I want to ask you <laughs> one more. Which is, um, when I think about Borat, the first one I think of the movie, and then I think of the deleted scenes where the guy at the supermarket shows some cheese, but it's he goes as this rice, and it's a type of. There's a few of those in the movie, but it's also a type of joke that is so funny to people who write comedy, but takes so much time. Um, yes. Does does one will this Borat have deleted scenes? in an era where like, I guess there's not really deleted scenes anymore. And like, do you have a scene that is like the modern day? Is this rice?
2: Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I hope there's a way to put that stuff out there. I mean, there's like a, a 12 minute cut of him in a scene that is just, you see one second of in the trailer that didn't make it in the movie of him just learning to to learn how to play golf with this guy who's very similar in tone to like the driving instructor in the first movie, yeah. just a very patient guy, a little bit gruff, and he just can't believe how stupid this Borat guy is. <laughs> and watching that, it was it was really magical. But the the one that I laughed the hardest at, which we only put a few moments of in the movie, is when he is uh, in the barber shop when he's yeah. being a barber to raise raise some money. And I was crying, laugh. I was in a car right outside because the barber shop is too small for me to hide. And so I was right outside watching our monitors and just tears streaming down my face because it was like, the we shot that twice. The first guy was probably the funniest, because, but we didn't use it um, because the guy looked, he looked kind of like he could be poor. He wasn't. He had mm. a job. He was, he actually had a, a great, good job. He was a respectable guy, but his look was he had like a white beard and he just had kind of a very gruff, mm. kind of a hobo look. And we were like... And so it was so funny on the day, but you watch it and it was like, this just, he doesn't, he feels too much of a low end target. It felt mean spirited. And then the other guy was great. It was just kind of a middle class guy. Um, Again, and not a, not a target we were ridiculing or trying to take down, just an extremely patient man. (laughs) And Borat is there, you know, there's probably 15 minutes where he would cut a piece of hair and get the guy to approve every hair that he cut off his head. And that's the kind of thing that would never make it into a movie at anywhere near, the, just like the cheese thing at anywhere near the length that it is. But to watch that in real life, I was I was dying. Yeah. So hopefully awesome. in some in some form, uh, yeah, you know, hopefully did, yeah. we'll, we'll figure out a way to get that stuff out there one that day. That is great.
3: Thank you. Thank you so much. All right. Well, that that is it. The the end of interview.
2: <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for everything. Jesse, thanks so much. This was so much fun
3: yeah it was i was so excited too um especially after dad reached out i was like oh his dad's gonna <laughs> listen to this i gotta do a good job <laughs> that's it for another episode of good one you can watch borat's subsequent movie film on amazon prime video follow jason on social media at jason wolner good one is produced by myself jelani carter hannah rosen and Camila salazar got from Shrikushin did our theme song write our review and rate the show on apple Podcasts. five stars please Email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to GoodOnePodcast at gmail.com or tweet at us at GoodOnePodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. And if you haven't, please check out my new Patreon podcast, The Specials. Good One is a production of Vulture in the Box Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with London Hughes. Have a good one.
1: Canva presents unexplained appearances.